This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. The Home Depot has holiday savings of up to 40% on select appliances, like a Whirlpool four-door French door refrigerator for just $15.98. It's perfect for a busy kitchen full of helping hands. That's where its fingerprint-resistant stainless steel finish really shines. Order online and get free delivery. Holiday appliance shopping improved. Up to 40% off select appliances. Now at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Continental U.S. only. Wasp supplies last. Valid through December 2nd. Free delivery on orders $396 or more. The Drinkworks Home Bar by Keurig is the perfect gift or addition to a small gathering. The Home Bar makes over 30 drinks from cosmopolitans to old fashions at the push of a button. Just insert the pod, press start, and enjoy. Each Drinkworks pod contains real ingredients and premium spirits. For a limited time, get $50 off the Home Bar with promo code HOLIDAY. Go to drinkworks.com to order now. Drinkworks. Press play. Keurig is a registered trademark of Keurig Green Mountain, Inc. Used under license. Please enjoy responsibly. You know what I want. <laughs> I want to talk to you. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Samson Folk. And today, in the doldrums of the offseason and the preseason, I'm joined by Adam McQueen, my colleague at Raptors Public, and we're going to talk about all the things that have happened in the preseason so far, a couple hypotheticals, and what we think is going to happen going forward, and most importantly, about Marcus All, since it's Adam McQueen on the podcast. Adam, how are you doing, man? I'm good, man. Uh, definitely in that doldrums, as you mentioned. I mean, it's been a minute since we chatted since, what, Vegas Summer League? I've kind of taken a step away from basketball, thankfully, but now I'm kind of ready for it all to kick off again. Yeah, me too. I got probably a little bit too excited to be waking up at 4 a.m. to cover those <laughs> Japan games. And then once, the in the first quarter, the first half, you feel like you're getting a decent return on your time, like the investment you're putting in. The second half and the Bulls game, when it's just the guys like, I like Dewan Hernandez, I like O'Shea Brissett, but having all those guys compiled into the safe five-man lineup against another, you know, not-so-great five-man lineup makes for not super-great basketball, but it makes for things you can glean from it. What did you think about those games just off the start? Um, yeah, I mean, more importantly was probably this Bulls game that we watched, you and I just talked about it, it's, that was kind of, obviously with all the main, the main guys besides OG really taking a rest, obviously, after the Tokyo trip, that 
that game had more stakes involved. There's a battle for some of those last rotation spots or even making the roster. So from that Bulls game, I think seeing some guys step up to the plate somewhat, I know it was a blowout loss, but then also uh, on the other end, there were some concerning performances that kind of lead me to question certain players and where they fit into this into this team. Uh, Is Stanley Johnson one of those concerning performances to you? He's he's on there. He's certainly on there. I mean, <laughs> the offensive performance, the aimlessly kind of wading your way into traffic, the lack of touch. That's that's all very concerning. I've got one player that has I've kind of that's drawn the ire of me for for a while now. That's probably just above him, but yeah, Stanley Johnson did not look good. Let's uh, let's follow that thread then. Who is the player that has drawn the most ire from you? And not to say he's been the worst player, but I think in the grand scheme of things, I like you're a smart guy, Samson. I I, I like <laughs> listening to your takes. I like listening to your basketball analysis, and you know I you make me smarter. So explain it to Adam, Pat McCall. Just explain it to me. What? What am I supposed to, when I watch Pat McCall, what am I supposed to be excited about? What am I supposed to project for the future? Like, there's nothing there. Even his, like, theoretical defensive upside is, Zach Levine put him in the blender far too many times. And I know that some of the pick and roll defense, like the, they had Hernandez and Boucher drop him. I was kind of leaving McCall struggling there, but... I, there's nothing that impresses me. The ball handling, the potential of him being the third point guard like no just because he can, has a tight handle he doesn't initiate the offense or conduct the offense or bring any flow to the attack and i i i don't get it with him and why they gave him two years eight mil is beyond me i'm i'm in the same boat as you i don't under this and i don't understand the fixation the raptors organization has with patrick mccaw like you said there is a perceived defensive upside there and I think he is a good defensive player. There's a lot of frenetic, energetic length that he's working with, and he's pretty diligent. He works hard. But like you said, advanced offensive players like Zach Levine, they can put him in the blender from time to time. And I think the biggest thing is that you can't operate a good NBA offense with him in, in, this, like in the lineup. It doesn't work. There's guys like Andre Robeson, Jeremy Grant, Guys like that who have no jump shot to to reckon with, but even they attempt the shots, they sit in the corner, they try to make it work for teams like Oklahoma City who have told players like that that if they want to play, they have to incorporate this. The Raptors haven't done that with Patrick McCaw. They haven't told him to just sit in the corner, shoot corner threes, which I think if he did that, he could become you know a low-end 3-and-D guy who maybe is worth $4 million a year. But they're trying to shoehorn him into this creator third-string point guard, and I think that's detrimental to his career because, quite honestly, it's not his lack of ability to create off the dribble that gums up the offense. It's his He just hates shooting the ball. You can see it when he catches the ball on the outside. It's not a perceived, like, oh, how am I going to attack this mismatch? It's just him wondering who he's going to move the ball to next. So the defense gets to rest, and the defense can even catch up to movement, right? Because if you have Fred Van Vliet, Kyle Lowry, Pascal Siakam stirring up the, up the other team's defense, and everybody's moving, they've got ball movement going on. If Patrick McCaw is in that lineup, if the ball hits his hands, 
it's going to stick. And then the defense is going to catch up, and the first 8 to 12 seconds of your offense is for nothing. And I think that is the big deal about Patrick McCaw. And I don't know why he is seen as an option for the Raptors. Him and Stanley Johnson, I think both of that is not great money spent at all. And I think it's pretty evident, pretty clear that they're not cutting it when we watch these preseason games. And if they are getting minutes into the regular season, I think it'll be evident then. But your take on that, I completely agree with that, 100%. But and, and when you, even the two guys you mentioned there from a, as, a, as an equivalent in, in Grant and Robeson, those are two top, top level defenders. Robeson, although he hasn't been on an NBA court in, what, two years now, like when he was playing on that Thunder playoff team, he's an all-NBA defender. Jeremy Grant, same thing. Maybe not all NBA, but he is a top, top level defender, a freak athlete, can defend from almost one to five positionally. Like, McCaw doesn't bring that upside. Yeah, McCaw, I think his upside would be somewhere around Fred Van Vliet's upside defensively, right? It's this very, very strong, and maybe to a higher degree than Fred Van Vliet in some ways, a lower degree in others. Maybe he can't chase around screens as well as Fred, but... He can really lock a guy up in his knees, kind of like Fred did to Steph Curry on occasion. But McCaw can be a really, really intimidating guard defender. Mm-hmm. He can't defend the wing like Roberson or Grant. And Roberson, like you said, all-NBA, probably defensive player of the year, nominee-type defense for extended stretches. And it's just McCaw doesn't have that. And he's also worse on offense than Grant, appreciably, and as far as where he is with Roberson, I would say they're about the same in the that they completely wreck NBA offenses. So I don't understand Patrick McCaw, but maybe <laughs> stepping sh- off of him. Let's, or, sir, go ahead. Well, I mean, the frustrating thing kind of leads on to the next player I guess I want to talk about is that in a vacuum, I, I can deal with some of the McCaw issues and Stanley Johnson, but it's even more frustrating, like you mentioned, that they've both of those guys have another year left on their deal and we watched them perform the way that they are and that they'll probably be around for another year yet here we are watching Malcolm Miller be on the precipice of being cut and I'm it looks a little bit more positive now that he might stay on the roster given how poorly the other two potential point guards played in uh in um campaign and then Isaiah Taylor in his in his brief brief spell but it's frustrating to see someone like Malcolm Miller, who I personally really like uh, as a player, as a person. I think he's a great addition to that kind of team and that he could get cut at the expense of having these two guys on the team. Yeah, that is, that's a point of contention for sure. And that's, I agree with you there as well. I, I've, been, I've been championing the Malcolm Miller is a bona fide NBA player for some time now. I think it's patently clear that he fits in on an NBA roster. He doesn't dominate G League minutes the same way as guys like Boucher or Powell did because he's not that type of player, but he operates in the vacuum of a 3 and D player really well next to G League talent, next to NBA level talent. And I, if he doesn't make an NBA roster, I'll be really sad for him because I think it's something he really deserves. And Stanley Johnson, Patrick McCaw, Having guaranteed money going to those guys really does hamstring the Raptors and how they can go forward with guys like Malcolm Miller or O'Shea Brissett. Miller, I thought, had a good preseason. I was happy he has a really quick trigger. He guards well. He's long. 
and he shoots the three well enough. And I think that's something he's going to keep improving at because he has a really short, sweet stroke. And that's a really great building block for a lot of guys. Another guy who's on the precipice of maybe a two-way contract with the Raptors and the 905, O'Shea Brissett. What did you think of him? He was uh, he was pretty exciting as well to watch. I mean, he definitely has the NBA body. He's pretty he's pretty impressive physically, and I think he was playing for the Clippers in summer league. And I watched him a little bit, and obviously had an eye on the Canadians. He didn't he didn't stand out much there, but although his shot hasn't gone down this preseason, there's definitely glimpses of potential, very brief glimpses, and there's there's no doubt that he's going to get the two way deal, right? Yeah, I think he'll be the guy. And like you said earlier on in the podcast, there was not there wasn't much to take away from the games in Japan. The Chicago game was probably more informative for guys like us who are looking at the Raptors fringe players, the guys who might make the team. And Brissett, he got to showcase more of his guard skills and wing skills in the Chicago game, whereas he was just kind of playing like a run the floor help side defender when he was playing against the Rockets because of other players playing with the ball a lot. Marcus Gasol even having a bit more in the second game. Fred Van Vliet playing a lot in the first game. Terrence Davis getting a lot of touches. So O'Shea Brissett against Chicago got to handle the ball a little more. Looked like a decent enough option on the wing, especially probably at the 905 level, to keep developing as an attacker, a guy who can isolate on occasion. And he's big. Like you said, he has an NBA body. And I was I was impressed. He had a corner three against Chicago. And mm-hmm. anytime a three-pointer goes down in these short amounts of games and short minutes, it's nice to see because these games for those guys, they're it's a pressure cooker. It's really high nerves. You're just you only have so long to make your case for the team. But I thought that O'Shea Brissett did really well. Even though he did miss a dunk, I was I was impressed with his overall performance. And more Canadian content, the more the better. Yeah, that's it's like in a FIFA, like in FIFA games. Anytime I start like a career with as a manager with like Liverpool or Juventus, or if you start like an FL Championship or something, you only ever scout Canadian players <laughs> so that you can build them up. So then you can manage the Canadian team and have it be good for once. I don't know if that's just a me thing, but like <laughs> I just uh, want a good Canadian football t- or soccer team, you know. That might be. I'm not as invested in the Canadian soccer scene right now. I've given that up long ago. Since Alfonso Davies left the Whitecaps here, I've not stepped foot back in that stadium to watch them play. Were you happy you went to Bayern, though? That's like that's a huge oh, club. My girl, my girlfriend is. She's a Bayern fan. She loves Bayern. I'm myself. I see my English roots. I'm a Chelsea fan, so I've got kind of Pulisic on the radar right now. Uh, I would have liked to see him in the Premiership, but yeah, nonetheless, like seeing him at a club a big club like that and actually playing now that Robin and Ribery are, are retired. It's yeah, it's, it's, it's dope. Yeah. Cool thing. Chelsea fan. That makes sense. You are kinda... <laughs> what do you mean? That makes sense. Uh, you're a hard nosed guy. You play rugby. You probably love Diego Costa griming it up in the box. Oh, well, I'm, it's an original is D- Didier Drogba really. Yeah. So, and even Man. before that, some of those guys, some of the, Oh, I could go on. I, we could do a whole separate podcast with Charles about Adam's favorite Chelsea players. Yeah, Drogba, his header in the Champions League final, man. That is the stuff oh my of God. legend. That was my high school graduation day, and my dad called me crying. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, my Lord. I can remember it like it was just yesterday. That exact moment 
Oh, hits. He just beats the defender to the near post. Glanton header. Oh, top right. Done. Yeah. Legend. Is there is there a basketball moment that you can compare to that? The shot, maybe? <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. It's weird because, like, I'm talking to some of my friends, other Raptors fans, and it's weird to, like, because you like to remember about nostalgic sporting moments you've watched. But, like, for the Raptors, it was not all of them, but, like, the top five memories have come from this year. So it's, like, hard to appreciate them as much. Like, in five years' time, it's going to be, like, remember the shot. Like, but at this point, it's kind of funny to think, like, what was your favorite Raptors memory? And they've just occurred in the last six months. Yeah. Mine, for the longest time, was DeMar's dunk on Thon Maker and Giannis in game <laughs> six against the Bucs. And that's the first round. That's not super crazy or anything or um, Kyle Lowry's buzzer beater to tie the game against Miami in game one of round two. That's pretty early playoffs. And now suddenly we're all these dejected fans who are like, oh yeah, our favorite highlights are from the first round. Now we're like, oh yeah, defending champs. We have so many great memories. And it's, yeah, the recency of it all. Um, to get back to the, the what we're actually supposed to be yeah, talking about. Yeah, let's get back to talking about basketball. No one cares about my Chelsea takes right now. Um, Chris Boucher. Thoughts on him? Okay, so Chris Boucher had a really good start to that Bulls game, as you were talking about in your reaction pod. And there's just, there's always something missing in his performances, even in Summer League, where he's uh, head and shoulders above everyone else on the talent scale. There's just, feels like there's something missing. I don't know exactly what it is. And as, as this is going on, I don't know if I'm, the new shiny objects kind of more alluring to me, but I'm kind of looking at Dewan Hernandez and I can kind of project Dewan Hernandez in a couple years as more of an NBA player than Boucher. I think Boucher struggles still on the glass, especially Markinen and Young had their way on the glass against the Raptors. It was just painful to see. Whereas Hernandez shored up the rebounds a lot more. And then he had his moments to start the game. He had a nice catch-and-shoot three. He beat someone off the dribble. But then as the as the game progressed, it was just kind of aimlessly going into the lane. He was looking for outlet passes that weren't there. And, I mean, it was a sloppy game. The talent around him isn't sufficient. But it just doesn't feel like there's something missing, and I can't quite put my finger on it with Boucher. It's, it is so interesting to me, his game, because... I like that you juxtaposed him with Dewan Hernandez because Hernandez, the basics of being a big man, at least in that game against Chicago, he came in and he did a great job at all of that. He shored up the, he he was rim protecting. He did a really, really commendable job rebounding the ball. Like he he did a man's work on the glass, and he was he was just setting screens. He was getting after it like an Amir Johnson type of game. That's kind of what I saw from Dewan Hernandez and Chris Boucher. The things that he's good at, the things that jump out about his game are all really flashy. It's the three-point shot. It's a seven-foot guy, you know, jab-stepping, going all the way to the rim for a finger roll. It's these big skyscraping blocks where he's hunting guys down. And that's all really flashy, but there's a lot of the game that's in the middle that's grinding for, that's setting really good screens. That's being able to push guards out of the way, which Boucher, when he's setting a screen... He just doesn't have the weight to kind of barrel through guys and to create a lot of space for the guards. And the rebounding is a big thing going forward. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting because the things he's really good at are the things 
that you really like you can teach, but it's tough for players to get to that level. Like a guy like him who's that tall, that long, shooting the way he does, especially if he can replicate it at the NBA level, is a boon for any team that has him, and especially if he's able to, you know, improve going forward. And him being able to attack closeouts like that is also pretty crazy. But there is he was G League Defensive Player of the Year. Like I get it. And he was in college as well. But I think the speed of the NBA pick and roll, I don't know if I'm the minority of this thinking. I've seen people online bash me for thinking he's not a good defender, but well, not bash me. That's probably disagree with me, let's say. But I think he gets lost in the NBA pick and roll and his footwork. He really gets left out to dry, hung out to dry. And there's just a lot left for him to work on. But these are things we see players get better at all the time. So that's probably what makes him look like such a an ideal potential player. But Dewan Hernandez, there's nothing flashy about his game. Mm-hmm. It's just this grit and grind big man, but he's good at it. And I, I honestly, I would, I want Dewan Hernandez on the Raptors this year. Not even a two-way. I think it would just be cool to have him as I, a, a third-string, fourth-string guy. I like his game a lot. I really think that uh, Dewan Hernandez's passing as well is something that is pretty underrated. He has a good eye for a lot of the backdoor cars. I think he hit McCall on one in the Bulls game and. As I mentioned when I was in Vegas, he hit Terrence Davis for a couple really nice backdoor passes. And it almost feels like Boucher should be the the rookie with this crazy upside and a lot of unpolished parts to his game. And that Hernandez is the 26-year-old player that's, I don't know, maybe he won't reach the heights that Boucher has potentially. But the, the, seat, the, the floor feels a lot higher with him. And yeah, I the Boucher thing is... Do do we hold it against him that he's 26 years old? Like, age, I know that age is, in, like, you look at the draft now and you all, everyone's drafting more and more, unless you're the Phoenix Suns, they're drafting 18, 19-year-olds because they want a chance to develop them and the potential's there. But So he's 26 years old, but he also has such limited game time in the NBA. And do those minutes... With given with proper NBA minutes at this point, will will he start to improve on the stuff that we're that we're noting right now, or is it he's 26 years old and he might be closer to the ceiling than we realize? Yeah, that's and the thing is right because he has such a mixed ceiling because there's so many flashy, really mm-hmm. high level parts of his game, and then there's really rudimentary parts of his game that he is terrible at that he just can't compete at the NBA level at and. Have we seen? Well, I'm not really sure. It's you do hold it against him that he's 26, obviously, as far as the Raptors organization standpoint. You and I looking at him from a fan standpoint, it doesn't matter. I mean, he's 26, we can cheer for him, and that's fine. Projecting as journalists to try and write about how he'll fit into the team, how valuable he is to the team, then again, has to play into it. The age has to play into it because he doesn't have. He's not 21 or 22. He doesn't have three years to build his body, to drink Shirley Temples every day, to put on (laughs) weight like Joel Embiid did. He's 26, and he's still rail thin. It's a strange thing. Like Even Bruno, who was tiny when he came to the league, by now, what is he, 23? He's like, his shoulders are filled out. He's he's got a torso on him. He's He's like way beefier, way beefier. He had time to put on the weight, and that was... 100% a prerequisite for him to play in the NBA. Boucher, does he have time to gain, like, 
30, 40 pounds? I don't think so. And that's it means that he has to find ways for his game to succeed in those flashy areas at an absurdly high level to make up for his, uh, I guess, shortfalls in the other areas. It's it's definitely something you have to hold against him because being 26 and that small is tough because I think any NBA franchise would be telling him to put on weight right now. And I'm sure the Raptors are trying to as well. But it's if he's 26 and has that body type, it might just be that that's the cards he's dealt. And yeah, that, that might honestly be the case. And actually, Bruno Caboclo, potential some small ball center minutes this year. Like to see that. But yeah, the Boucher thing, I'm just not sold. I think I'm hedging towards kind of selling my, my Boucher stock at this point. I might look like a fool considering that this is the first year that he could be getting real NBA minutes for the first time and being paired with quality NBA talent. But I just don't see it. Plus, you've got you've got Gasol and Ibaka, and obviously, especially in Gasol's case, he'll he'll have a lot more load management, a lot more rest. But I don't I don't see Boucher being able to slip in at the four comfortably to pair with those guys, and you're not really going to cut those two's minutes just to just to develop Boucher because although the Raptors are, I guess re. What's the word? They're not rebuilding, but retooling. they're re- retooling. Sure, whatever. Re-somethinging. They're not... There's Winning still is important, and they're still expected to be a playoff team, and they're not just going to sacrifice minutes at the five to give Boucher development, and I don't know if he can be the four. Yeah, and some people are even trying to say that he can be a three. You hear it on the broadcast. Oh. You see it in comment sections. It's it's honestly people... It's It's that optimism, you know? It's... We've returned partially back to the pre-Kawhi era, even pre-DeMar DeRozan, Kyle Lowry, all-star era, where you're looking at end-of-roster options, and since you don't have a star player, you're idealizing people. Mm-hmm. And when you start idealizing players, they can get really good in your head really fast. You know what I mean? So you're like, well, Chris Boucher, he can bang in a triple, he can attack from the three-point line, maybe he plays the three. You know what I mean? So there's there's definitely people doing that, and that's half the fun of being a fan is idealizing your players and trying to see them grow into something like that. Um, speaking of a guy growing, a guy who's grown, Segaba Kanate. That, for everything that he isn't, he has an NBA body. That is a thick dude. What did you think about his games? Well, he didn't really get too many minutes, and unfortunately, again, didn't get to see him in Vegas due to an injury, but... Man, just in person, that guy, he's built like a middle linebacker. Like, he's absolute, just so thick. And he did finish that one dunk thunderously. I I hope that, I hope that the, the other two-way spot is available to him. And I, I liked, I watched a, a decent chunk of his college stuff. And obviously he had one of his seasons cut short by injury there too. But, like, this is the kind of guy that the Raptors should hold on to and hopefully develop in the 905 system. I think I think he might get a two-way. I There's I not many other options for two-way guys right now on the, on the being in training camp. Like, other than Brissette, like, the other one's there. It seems like it's kind of... is Kanate's to lose. And considering that they picked him up on that Exhibit 10 deal so quickly after the draft, there's clearly interest from the Raptors' end. 
Yeah, and he, man, he plays hard. And it's always those guys who, the margins of their game, they can improve upon. And suddenly they become like, guys like Cam Birch, who teams are like, eh, I don't know about him. Suddenly he just improves one little thing. He's got this massive NBA body. All of a sudden he can jump to like an eighth man in the rotation. You know what I mean? Kanate, maybe he develops that last step to become like an eighth man type big man. And that's I think that's why. Because he's proven he has the athleticism and the body to play that position. And yeah, I think the Raptors see that. And it's it's interesting to see how they'll move forward with it. Isaiah Taylor, do you have any uh, takes on him? Because I'm... He, I, I don't have Isaiah Taylor takes. I'll let you take him. He's he's one of those like move the chains type of point guards, and maybe I'll maybe it's not fair, but I'm gonna shoehorn Cameron Payne into this as well. Oh. Nothing exciting is really happening with them on ball. Not a ton of creation, and they just they sit at the tip the top of the arc and they're moving the ball from side to side. Not a lot of attacking. Nothing really going on, and neither of them was able to to do much with it. I don't know. Do you have any difference of opinion there? Can we just agree that campaign is not the answer? Can we just agree, everyone, He's... just to not <laughs> let him play minutes for the Raptors? It's just it's just a waste at this point. Like, no offense. I'm sure he's a nice guy. He has that cool... He has those cool little handshakes and dances with Ross. But, like, it's... You know what you've got there. And this kind of ties into that kind of... That, that third point guard hole that is lingering over roster selection. And I I, I, I don't think Campaign or Isaiah Taylor are, Taylor are going to be that third point guard on the roster. Maybe Taylor is the other two-way option. But do you think there's a need for a third point guard? Because this is why I've been deliberating in my head at this point. I know that they put Terrence Davis there a little bit. And then you know that Lowry is going to rest a lot more. And we know that Fred Van Vliet's had some injuries before and has never played 82 games. So there is a need for point guard depth. But at the same time, when you have a year where Siakam's going to become the focal point of the offense and not be Kawhi, but he will handle the ball as much as Kawhi did last year in lots of games. And you have a Marcus Gasol who, who's... Usage will probably be increased now that he's got a whole, what, eight months under his belt with the team. Now he's he's fully kind of into that system. He's also someone you can play the offense through. Do they do they need a third guard as much as I think they might do? Or is it just, is it is it keep someone like Malcolm Miller because that's a known commodity. He's a solid contributor and will we'll make do with other ball handlers in the roster. That's exactly what I think. I think it should be, if I was the decision maker, that you run with Fred and Kyle, Terrence Davis, Norman Powell. If it's if things get really hairy, you can run either one of those as your initiator. And then obviously you're trying out a bit of Pascal Siakam. Well, probably a, a, a decent amount of Pascal Siakam this year. A tiny bit of OG Ananobi. And when things are really rough, you can run the elbow offense through Mark. I'd much rather try different initiators at different positions than get a boot a guy like Malcolm Miller out of the roster and keep a guy like Cameron Payne. I think the disparity in how good they are is too much to even go after what positions you want. And I think the Raptors have enough creative and interesting players on the roster that they can they can take that risk. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I've been bouncing this back and forth. And I think you're right. I mean... 
the hypothetical point guard that they could put in there. If they had a good option as that third guard, he'd probably be in camp already. And if campaign's the best thing that you could have scraped out the out the out the bin there of the point guard, uh, free agent point guards, is probably not someone that's gonna warrant quality minutes. Let's okay. Let's talk. Let's give Terrence Davis a couple minutes. Tell Are me we what you a think. couple minutes. Oh right. yeah. I'll well, stitch it. I'll stitch it into the front of the podcast as well, so it fits in. Perfect. Well, okay, Terrence Davis. I'm not a possessive guy in any way, shape, or form. I'm. If someone likes a movie that I've been a fan of for years, I'm all aboard for that. Come in and like it. But I, I'd be lying to you if I wasn't a little bit sad that he's blown up so quickly because he was like my little thing in in the Vegas summer league. <laughs> I as as we talked about before, I got to interview him the day he signed, the day he played his first game and went off for the Raptors. And the guy is the most immense, just just the most likable, rootable, humble, hardworking, gritty guy that you can just kind of see from the get go. And the way he plays on the court, the way he conducted himself, obviously his backstory that like. I wanted that to be my little secret so I could run a little, maybe a piece a month in when he gets his first, maybe little, little bit of Raptors minute, maybe start introducing him. But here he is blowing up in Tokyo immediately and everyone's a fan. It's like, come on, man, like at least wait five minutes for me so I can be ahead of the curve here. But uh, the Raptors gain my journalistic loss. <laughs> oh, yeah. well. I yeah, I like Terrence I Davis him. a lot. It's I think he's got a very clean three point stroke. He's got the body to compete at the one and the two, and he has a motor, and he's got that Fred Van Vliet ethic and type of aura around him that you Absolutely. know nothing will stop him going forward. He'll make his way in the league, and he'll he'll be he'll stick around. I don't yeah. know what that looks like in a couple years, but he'll be there in a couple years, no matter what. I'm sure. It'll be interesting to see how Nurse deploys him. Obviously, the the Tokyo minutes and even the the Bulls game, he's playing the one predominantly. I mean, one in theory, he's more. He's not really the lead ball handler in every action, but he's definitely, I I guess, for lack of a better word, he was of the point guard when he was on the floor for most situations. I maybe they make him the third guard. I mean, as we mentioned before, though, it it, it doesn't necessarily need to be a lead initiator beyond. Van Vliet and uh, and Larry, but yeah, how, however they use him will be. It'll be interesting to see how he develops. I think that he is malleable to play a bunch of different roles. Um, and it comes down to like you mentioned that, that shooting stroke. If he can be uh, a thirty-six to forty percent shooter, especially in the corners, then then there's no way he doesn't get a, a decent chunk of NBA minutes. Um, when we're talking about ball handlers and people that can initiate the offense. I know you wanted to talk about Marc Gasol, and I feel like this is a perfect segue to do so. Do you think that they could play more of the offense through Gasol, and where do you think he'll be the best option for them? I I think that you can run him in two different positions, basically. You can keep it the same old, same old as last year, where he's operating as a five-out center and you're trying to run a lot of action above the arc, and you can use his height to find cutters who are going baseline or even some split action on the opposite side. And obviously he can shoot from there. He's going to operate as a pick-and-roll big for a lot of possessions as well, especially when he's sharing the floor with Fred and Kyle. But also, 
I think that there is a lot of potential there if things are slow and dragging that I think it behooves the Raptors to insert some elbow option plays for him. I just think that they should at least have some elbow offense in the playbook for Marcus All to throw at teams on occasion because I think that he's too good a passer and he's too good a player to not include that piece of the offense for him. And especially in a team that is looking for new ways to create this year after having an overabundance last year. There wasn't really enough to share because guys like Siakam probably could have done more. Kyle Lowry was definitely doing less than he could have. Kawhi Leonard obviously doing as much as he wanted when he wanted because he's Kawhi Leonard. This year, that overabundance isn't there. I expect them to lean on Marcus all quite a bit. And I think he can operate as the five-out center, and he'll be good at it. He can operate as the focal point of the offense at times, running out of the using his elbow action. And prior to getting traded to the Raptors, he's one of the heavy, heaviest usage for elbow action plays. So I think that's both those things should be there for the Raptors. What do you think? So we're in agreement there. I just wanted to run that by you. With that being said, no, I'm this is I'm not a hundred percent sure I, w- I want this to happen, but with that being said. And when Gasol first came to the team, there was a lot of, especially during the regular season, there was, it was kind of a um, him and him and Serge was would just split the starting minutes, like it'd be his turn, your turn, his turn, your turn. And when he first came onto the scene, Gasol was incredibly good at really injecting life into those bench units. I think he's the sole reason that Pat McCoy even got a bucket in in the league. Um, could Gasol come off the bench a bit more? Because as we mentioned when we were breaking down the playoffs last year, Ibaka gets is better with Kyle Lowry on the floor. He doesn't need him, and he's been actually very good in the preseason in Tokyo, actually. He was one of the few guys with a lot of energy. But Gasol doesn't necessarily need a Lowry to flourish. And I think we've a lot of people have touched on that bench, there's a lot of unknown, there's a lot of uncertainties about that bench, and there's a very, very warranted skepticism that they can produce offensively. If Gasol plays more bench minutes, could could that alleviate some of the offensive struggles that they may have? It definitely could in some ways, and it's just, it's up to the Raptors to decide if they're going to chase their ceiling or play because they're scared of how low their floor can get at times. And if they're chasing their ceiling, I think Gasol will be on the floor with Siakam and Lowry because I think Gasol pairs extremely well with Siakam, as does Ibaka, but there's, it's clear that there's a better fit with Gasol and Siakam. And if they want Siakam as the future and they want him to develop in certain ways with more spacing, I'd expect Gasol and Siakam to be paired quite a bit. But if they're truly scared of how bad things can get, how grinded up their offense can get with their bench lineups, then I could see Gasol spending quite a bit of time there. It depends what they opt for. You know, if they, some teams in the NBA, they've made their bones on killing teams with their starting lineup and completely dying when their benches come into the game. Some teams try and mix and match that. The Raptors famously, their starting lineup for a lot of years didn't kill teams, but the Lowry Press bench unit would completely dominate in the in between, things like that. So it's just, it'll be interesting to see 
what the Raptors decide is the way they want to go. If they want to just punch up for their ceiling and completely knock teams out with Lowry, Siakam, and Gasol, and then see if they, they build leads that way, have teams whittle away at a Fred and Ibaka bench lineup that I think Fred and Ibaka, they should have a better two-man game this year, but it obviously that won't be enough to completely lift up a bench unit. So we'll see. It basically comes down to what the Raptors want to do, what they want for their team's offense. But there's definitely potential for Gasol to play more with the bench guys. Yeah, I mean, there's, 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 as you mentioned there, there's, there's been pros and cons from both situations, and I, I don't know if you'd want. I, I mean, look, we've, we've had a year of Nick Nurse under our belts here too. He is not averse to change. He will change it up regularly, and I think if, if we, if we kind of understood anything from last year with playoff success, you realize that the regular season's a lot of experimentation and. Granted, the Raptors don't have the same kind of leeway or talent as they did last year, but that doesn't mean that they won't experiment during the regular season. And if need be, Ibaka might need to get out of a funk. Maybe it'll be better to get him in the starting lineup for a couple of games. Uh, Conversely, like you said, maybe you want to start hitting that ceiling with Gasol, Siakam, Lowry, because as you mentioned there, actually, Gasol could be a very key component to Siakam's success as well as a front court mate or it's more of a five out as you mentioned but technically speaking it would be them at the four and five so there's a lot of options they could go with and I'm sure we'll probably see them I could see maybe a 70% Gasol starting over Ibaka right but I, I certainly will expect to see Ibaka in the starting lineup as well yeah and it was it was especially it was Nice to see that Fred was able to create for Serge Ibaka because all of last year, Fred wasn't able to create for Serge Ibaka. He just could not find the spacing on the pick and roll. They didn't have their lanes matched up. There were no passing lanes to find Ibaka on the short roll, on the fade, or on the hard roll to the rim, on the dive. It just it wasn't working. So it was nice to see Van Vliet was sometimes snaking the pick and roll, sometimes he was gnashing the pick and roll, and sometimes just running it straight. All three of those options, he was finding Ibaka, he was creative, and that was really nice to see because that has probably been the downside of Van Vliet, at least compared to DeLon Wright when they were playing kind of a one-two punch off the bench, was DeLon was far better running the pick and roll. Mm-hmm. Van Vliet, obviously, the better shooter, so he was better equipped to play next to Kyle. But So maybe there's a bit more optimism for the mm-hmm. bench than, than it sounds like we're portraying. I want to... but. Gasol, there's potential there. To get on to the the last Raptors thing of this podcast is, are the Raptors equipped to deal with Zion on opening night? <laughs> is anyone? I, this is what's interesting, right? Because the Raptors did a really great job against Giannis, a r- relentless rim attacker who has a tight handle and unbelievable athleticism. How, like, are the Raptors, because they were able to to stop Giannis or mitigate how damaging his offense could have been to their defense, do you think they're well prepared with Siakam, OG, Kyle Lowry to step into the lane and slip under Zion for charges, maybe, and Gasol and Ibaka? Like, what do you think? That's That's been the... I've seen that kind of tweet pop up maybe once every few days since 
since we probably since the schedule came out, like when is Lowry gonna step in to try and take a charge from Zion? That's kind of the moment that we're all waiting for at this point. Um, are they equipped? Sure, of course they're equipped. They're the defending NBA champs. Zion is a rookie. <laughs> he might be one of the most insanely impressive rookies I've ever seen. Stepping into one of the best basketball playing situations for a rookie that I've that I've come across in recent memory, probably. What what rookie has stepped into a better situation like Tim Duncan? I mean, they want to chip. Tim Duncan was... had a he had a really good spot there. Magic yeah. Johnson did as well. I'm sure there's one. Let's think. Um, Donovan I'm... Mitchell came into a really good spot. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah, I mean the the Giannis the Giannis Zion comparisons. I mean, obviously for obvious reasons, there's some there. Zion is not even half the player that Giannis is currently. But there's also with those playoff situations, it took it took the Raptors till game three to really figure out how to kind of slow down or approach stopping Giannis because he absolutely killed them until they put Kawhi on him. That was that was Nick Nurse's last last ditch move to save that series was to put Kawhi on Giannis. And unfortunately, the Raptors no longer employ Kawhi Leonard. Um but let's get what? back to the yeah. When did yeah, this breaking happen? news? Breaking news. I'm your insider here, Samson. That's the, the so Pel- interesting. Right? I don't know. I, I, it'll be interesting to see how the Pelicans actually line up. I've I've watched uh, little bits of highlights of their games. I'm not sure they've started. What's their lineup been? Hasn't it been uh, Drew, Lonzo, Ingram, Zion, and uh, is it Favors they've had at the five? or Favors, yeah. So they haven't put Redick out there. So there's already minimal shooting where, unless unless you're a true believer in Lonzo's reformed shot, which actually does look... It doesn't look like the ugliest jump shot in the league now, which is an improvement on last year. So it might be a little bit more cramped of, a, of an offense than Giannis with four shooters spread out. But I, obviously Zion won't be used in the same way that Giannis was there, which was everything for Milwaukee. What yeah, do you th- that was... That would have been my first question. If Redick was in the starting lineup, the most interesting thing for me would be, are Zion and Redick sharing the floor for actions? Or not sharing the floor, sharing the same side of the floor so that if Zion is making the pass to the short side or the weak side, and then depending on how they play off of that two-man game. But it doesn't appear that they care for that. They're running with Lonzo, Drew, Ingram, Zion, and Favors. So... Short on shooting, obviously, like you said. Mm-hmm. Even Drew, who is the best player in the whole league, he doesn't shoot the ball super well <laughs> from downtown. He's a killer from mid-range. Drew Holiday, I, I love him to death, but he doesn't shoot that well from downtown. Ingram, I'm not a huge believer in his three-point stroke. I mean, he'll shoot it fine. He'll do a good enough job, I'm sure. But that's not something I'm super worried about. And favors as well. Obviously, he's not going to stretch the floor. It's interesting to even try and surmise how the the Pelicans will play at all, right? Mm. Because in the preseason, you just see, obviously, there was that famous 12 for 13 shooting that Zion put up, and it's kind of this robust rim-attacking style. But outside of that, what are the Pelicans really trying to do? They get them the ball on the move a lot, kind of like what the Raptors tried to do with DeMar quite a bit. When DeMar wasn't able to create off the dribble, they would try and do dribble handoffs, get him moving towards the rim to great success. Same thing with Zion. So I don't know. Drew Holiday, I think, as bad as it sounds, 
if he's guarding Kyle Lowry on opening night, I think he's going to steal his dinner and eat his lunch. It's it's not so much fun to think about like when Lowry gets his ring that he has to try and score against Drew <laughs> Holiday for a whole game, but that's that's the world we live in, and it's kind of unfortunate for Kyle. But I think it's going to be a grimy, grinded-out game, honestly. And I think the Raptors, kind of like how way back when, when Kyrie came into the league and he played the Raptors and the Raptors made it really tough for him, and then he exploded afterwards. I think that's Zion. I think Zion will have kind of a tough opening game, mm-hmm. and then whoever he plays next, he's going to blow it up. But I, I think the Raptors, they'll, they'll do okay. I, I have a bone to pick with you, actually. Oh, let's hear it. Your reaction podcast after the game, you're forecasting the Pelicans, and you were listing off all of these Pelican players of note. You left someone out. You Who know did I leave out? You don't even know what... You, oh, you didn't even know what you did wrong, Samson. I don't know whether to be angry or disappointed in you. You didn't mention Nikhil Alexander-Walker. Oh, okay. And he's he's your favorite. I'm very sorry. He is my favorite. He is my absolute favorite. The most... Oh, my God. The most ambidextrous rookie I've seen. Oh, my Lord. Also... Just to put this in here before we kind of veer away from the Raptors, speaking of ambidexterity, I know you've done a lot of breakdown on OG Ananobi and his jumping off of two feet, his one foot, and a lot of talk has been made about his kind of couple of the buckets he made and his physical dominance in in the preseason so far. Am I am I the only one that sees him as a very one-handed player right now? Yeah, I he is a super one-handed player, and I'm glad you brought up the perceived, I guess, fluidity of his spin moves because those were bad spin moves. Oh, yeah. I, I hated seeing people compare him to Siakam off of those spin moves because <laughs> Siakam's first point of contact is the forearm or the shoulder before he starts spinning. OG's first point of contact is his back touching the guy as he falls backwards towards the rim and then by the grace of God spins in air, stepping off of a foot that's leading him backwards before making a layup. Like all of the spin moves he did were very, very uncoordinated. The footwork was everywhere. His balance way off. And it's just the strength of those legs of his to stabilize him before going up. But I don't think it's those moves are easily replicable Mm -hmm. and, Is he a one-handed player? I think so. A lot of big guys are. A lot of the guys who attack the rim like that are. And most of the time he's finishing at the rim, it's with two hands anyway. Like he's usually dunking at the rim, to be quite honest with you. Or it's easy enough for him to go up with the right hand. I haven't seen much in the way of like, I haven't seen it being problematic the way he finishes at the rim because he's such a power finisher. The finesse of his left hand hasn't seemed super necessary yet. Maybe it will be, but as far as like his dribbling, he's obviously a, a very right-sided guy. That mm-hmm. is the simplest way to put it. But the fluidity, the finesse of his game has a long way to go. And to compare him to the finessing and fluid Pascal Siakam is sacrilege. I will not hear it. So, but yeah, I've, I've, what do you I've think? seen you being taken umbrage to people compare, and me too. It's like I love OG, big fan of OG. I think where he can fit into this team is is incredibly 
uh, is exciting. And after last year as well, like it's exciting to see him bounce back. But why why are we forcing these expectations for him to make a Siakam type leap? Or like you mentioned there, comparing those spin moves to Siakam. Like I'm not, I know I'm nitpicking here with his one handedness, but I feel like we're putting, like you mentioned earlier, we're idealizing him far too much before he's even played a minute of regular season basketball here. Basically, the things that need to happen for OG Ananobi for us to get any return on our investment of our interest and our, you know, how we're projecting his potential. He needs to attack closeouts really well. He needs to shoot the ball well enough from deep, and he needs to keep defending at the same level. Right Mm -hmm. now, he's not shooting the ball consistently from any spot on the floor. In year one, he shot the ball well from the corners. He shot the ball well overall from downtown, and he attacked closeouts well enough although on very limited opportunities. Year two, obviously, it was kind of in flux for him. I I wrote about it in my player review for his whole year. If you, you can go find that, I think it's a pretty good rundown of everything that went good and bad for him on the year, if you're so inclined. But those things are what he needs to improve upon before we even start wondering if he's going to start finessing spin moves in ISO situations. There, there's a very clear roadmap for him to finding success in the NBA. And it's not as a guy who's taking guys off the dribble, spinning on them into the lane. The most true part of what he was doing in the lane was that he was going downhill and players were getting kind of pushed under the rim, which is a good thing for him going forward. But more important than that is his ability to attack in straight lines, which is something Norman Powell is fantastic at. Norman mm-hmm. Powell hasn't gone to the part of his career where he can attack in different ways and he can attack at different speeds but og has to get that one down just to attack in straight lines and in one speed and he has to be able to shoot the ball consistently and obviously defensively i think he's great and i think he'll continue to improve as most players do the longer they're in the league but anything outside of those things i think is a step too far until we see him doing those things Mm -hmm. at a high clip it's just to ask him to start creating already after last year, I think is is it's too much, and mm-hmm. there, the Siakam jump. I mean, how many players have really made that jump? Like you, you probably couldn't even name five, honestly. Oh, no, the Siakam no. jump is it's a massive leap. Well, I, and exactly, it's a recipe for disappointment. And I is actually I didn't think of that idealizing uh, point you made earlier in the podcast, and now it's kind of sitting with me, and I'm starting to realize that, especially. You spend a couple too many minutes looking on Twitter and see the the optimism, which is great. I like to see optimism on my Twitter timeline, but sometimes it's uh, it gets a little too far. Yeah, well, it's and none of this conversation on Boucher or OG is meant to you know put a damper on anything. It's just no. there are realistic limitations that they haven't yet surpassed. That are things that we don't often see players surpass, but when they do, it's special and it's good. So. Just wait till they surpass it to celebrate it, and then celebrate it as if it were special, like and we tell did Siakam. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> moving away from the Raptors for the last, I guess, let's say, ten minutes of this podcast. Tell me why I should dislike watching James Harden because <laughs> I love watching James Harden, and I know I'm in the minority, but I love watching Harden. I could watch full forty-eight. It just, I love it. Tell oh. me why I'm wrong. 
you know what? He's good to watch those like YouTube highlights of. But when you <laughs> actually like, I can appreciate if I'm just doing a roundup and I'm watching those like eight minute highlights of games. It's like, oh, this guy's a badass. What's everyone complaining about? And then you watch the full game. Raptors, Rockets, or two games in that matter, for that matter. And, oh my, it's just so long. It's so boring. It's so, especially when we're wanting, especially preseason, like we want to see up and down alley-oops, just full court, and then the occasional isolation possession. But, like, do we have to do this? I like a little variety is the spice of life, Samson. And this guy seems to have just hacked the game in a way that, sure, I can appreciate it, but it doesn't mean I have to like it. <laughs> well, see, so my response would be, variety is the spice of life. And he plays different than all the teams that are trying to get up and down the floor. <laughs> that's, that's honestly, if every team played like the Rockets did, the league would be in a much, much worse place. But I respect it on such a basketball player level. Kind of, you know how players respect Kobe because he makes tough shots and players tend to overvalue tough shots. Mm -hmm. I am a pick and roll point guard in real life. I love the minutia of the pick and roll and watching James Harden dissect it to the nth degree, like the type of things he's getting an advantage on border, like it borders on petty. Some of the things he does is so stupid and so like, ha, Gotcha. And watching a guy manipulate the pick and roll like that over the course of a game is like, it's the best thing for me to watch. I really appreciate it. But I also understand why other people hate it because it it can get pretty repetitive, obviously. When when he's heating up, when he's dropping 60 at MSG on, was that, New Year's Eve or something like that, that, you know what? I'll bow down. I can appreciate it. And the guy's a badass. He's unstoppable, but yeah, 48 minutes of it might be a little bit too much for me. In fact, when I'm with this preseason stuff, we're, we might be looking into some of these preseason moments a little bit too much, but I can safely say that after these three preseason games we've watched, it's a, it's a two-man race for the MVP, right? It's Harden or Levine. <laughs> Levine did look awesome, actually, though. Oh, my God. As a, somebody who's been, I'm not, I haven't been that high on Levine. I think a lot of his numbers were inflated for a long time. But the way he was running, like the way he was operating within the Bulls offense, I thought was really, really nice. The defense obviously isn't going to be there for Levine. It's not a big part of his game. But offensively, he looked sharp, man. He looked great. He was bad out there. He That's another reason is I, uh, that I like Malcolm Miller so much is during that game that was absent of any defense, Miller was probably the only player. They threw maybe five or six different guys. And Miller was the only one that managed to keep Levine in front of him. And unfortunately, I think it was probably three different just step. There was a step back three. There was a baseline jumper. Like Levine just hit hard shots in his face. But he was the only one that avoided just getting diced apart at will. Yeah. that Well, that was, like you said, hitting hard shots. I appreciated that about Levine's game, that he wasn't just taking the easy options. You saw he could have been attacking the whole time, and with the Raptors, the way they were in that game, probably could have marched to the rim repeatedly, but you could see he was more focused on working the pick and roll and kind of fleshing out the options that were in front of him and then watching the defense collapse and fall in response, and 
that led to a lot of jump shots for him, which he, I think he went four of six from downtown, nine of 14 from the floor. So, yeah, Levine was, I, that was a treat to watch. I thought it was super fun. Wendell Carter Jr. wasn't as good as I wanted him to be. I really want him to be Al Horford 2.0 <laughs> going forward. So I'm really high on Carter Jr. So I was a little he, bit disappointed with he how he played. Strikes, he definitely strikes me as a Samson Folk type player. I'm a, I'm a big Markkinen fan. I was actually in Chicago last Christmas and watched watched them play uh, Oklahoma City, and he had a dunk for the win, which was insane. And since then, I've been heavily on the Markkinen bandwagon. Markkinen is great. I think Markkinen is... One of those guys who's going to slowly ramp up into an all-star player. Mm-hmm. Just He seems destined for it. You know some guys, they take like a big leap. And then some guys, it's harder for the guys who are slow to get voted yeah. in as an all-star. Like eventually in their career, there's guys like Carlos Boozer who just kept getting better, 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 better. But that doesn't reflect in normal fans because fans just want a guy to go from bad to good. And then yeah. they reward that. But Markkinen seems like one of the guys who will just incrementally will get much better and then suddenly you're like oh wow this guy is 24 and 11 shoots 40 percent from downtown and it's just going to be he's going to be everything barnyani wasn't (laughs) (laughs) i I don't want to derail this too much but do they do the bulls make the playoffs this year or not do they make the playoffs this year um do you do you you have on them or the hawks i think neither but I like the Bulls more than the Hawks because I really, really like Kobe White. I really like Otto Porter Jr. I like Wendell Carter Jr. I love Markinen. Those and Levine is a good score. And good scores, like volume scores, are very important to seeds six through eight. I think mm-hmm. volume scores in the East really, really do help seeds six through eight or help teams achieve seeds six through eight in the East, even some years four through eight. So that's there's a recipe for a playoff berth there. The Hawks, I really like John Collins. Trey Young is so much fun, but I just I don't see it this year. Yeah, I could see I could see the Bulls sitting around the uh, it, it takes one Blake Griffin knee operation for the Bulls to make the playoffs, I think, in my opinion. Yeah, there's there's always that possibility. It's yeah. But, yeah, to, to get back to the last thing, Markel Fultz. I love Markel Fultz. I, I've been such a big fan for such a long time. Have you watched his highlights from preseason? I have. I, I've watched a decent chunk. I can't Isn't say I've watched full so highlights. But... goddamn electric? Like, don't you watch him play and it's so unique? Like, I tell you what, he oh. looks like the exact player that Philadelphia could have used in that playoff round against the Raptors. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm just I'm just throwing it out there. A six foot six guard with wingspan that can guard multiple positions is a good ball handler. I don't know. Would have looked pretty good on that team. Well, he's not just a good ball handler. Like oh. I, he is a savant level reactionary ball handler and passer. I like I mean that. Like you watch this guy explode into areas that you didn't even think were there. The fact that he was robbed of his jump shot, I think, is one of the saddest things in the NBA because you watch every other facet of his game and he is an elite guard at almost every other thing. Like his his pick and roll defense, the way he attacks other guards out on the perimeter on defense, his like Man, you watch this guy come out in transition, shoulder another player into the stands, and yam it on them. And, like, he's so big 
and he's so willing to defend, and he's such a creative passer. And, man, the explosion in his athleticism on the pick and roll is just something else. And he's nifty in the lane. If that jumper ever comes, man, if that jumper ever comes. And you're I, throwing, man, you're throwing that, you're throwing faults in there with Jonathan Isaac, who I know is your, is he, he's your pick for most improved player. Am I right in, in that yeah. prediction? Yeah. I mean, you put him with that. You put him with Aaron Gordon. Who knows if Mo Bamba can be anything at this point. You, I'm just athleticism below, uh, alone on that Orlando team. It's, it's kind of funny how within a year they go from just purgatory, just mediocrity, eternal mediocrity to being this kind of, I think the basket NBA nerds kind of f- favorite team now. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think was it Pelicans, Grizzlies, and Magic are are those three are really really fun going into next oh, year. Yeah. There's a lot of length and a lot of athleticism on all those teams. I guess it would be Zion, Ingram, Lonzo, Drew, who else? and for the Grizzlies you have Clark, Caboclo, John ja Morant, and for the well, actually, that's magic, also sad yeah. news about. Uh, hopefully, uh, Valanciunas's injury is not long term because that, that that was crappy preseason news. Yeah, it's man, he has bad luck in his career. I tell you, it would have been great to see him and him and Jaren could be a really cool parent in that front court. And then the Grizz obviously aren't winning anytime soon, but it you need some veteran stability, and without that, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think it's he would have been such a good like piece on that team, especially in a year where they're kind of, you know, they're in flux. They're they're keeping some guys who are good, obviously Igodala, Valanciunas, and they have the Jay young Crowder. guys as well. Yeah, Jay Crowder, and they have the young guys as well, and they're just trying to compete at the best level that they can, while also you know giving a decent amount of possessions over to Jaw, Jaron Jackson, seeing how it goes from there. To not have Valanciunas sometimes to just pound away in the post, I think will take a lot away from their mm-hmm. from their team. But we'll see how it goes later in the season. But I don't know, man. I I am in love with Markel Fultz's game, and I just wanted to talk about it on a podcast. I, what do you think about Fultz in a in a thirty second sum up? What do you think of him? Fultz. I mean, it's it's gotta be the most unique actually now as this is hyperbole but he's got to be one of the most unusual unique stories that to come out of the nba in in recent memory just it's so it's so sad what you mentioned but at the same time there was even even in his first first uh round where he actually got some playoff minutes when when philly lost to boston like he has everything you need in a modern nba player and it's I'm hoping that somewhere like Orlando, you're away from the microscope. There's zero expectations. That that's that's kind of the environment that someone like Markel Fultz needs in this in this in this moment. And I think you you surmised it perfectly. Like we need we need to have a bigger sample size now. But there's a reason a dude goes a number one pick in the draft. And it he was a good shooter, but it wasn't like that he was the number one pick because of his shooting alone. It was everything else that comes with it. So. I'm really optimistic. Um, I hope Orlando make the playoffs again. And I hope that he can be a, a part of that team. I think my my biggest dream for this year is for Orlando to make the playoffs and for Fultz to for that to become his stage 
Oh man, that would against be fun Philly. Maybe against, a, yeah, just, that would be three? funny. Because I I picked Philly to win to win it all this year, probably just because of Embiid and Simmons. Yeah. yeah, but think, we'll see. And Horford, obviously. But I'm not ready to bet yet. But I think I'm leaning Houston. I th- I think it makes sense. But the Westbrook of it all might be a might might steer me away from that pick. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting, right? Because everyone's like, well, it's either the Lakers or the Clippers. Paul George is already out. Anthony Davis is already out. And you just you see how things can go sideways. It's so clear it's so how clear. fragile both of those teams are. Houston, while not having the same ceiling as the Lakers or the Clippers, is the farthest thing from fragile. That is like that team is a brick. Yeah. Westbrook is not going to be out. Harden is not going to be out. Gordon not going to be out. Like Capella not going to be out. It's just going to be there the whole yep. year. That team is going to compete, and then the playoffs they'll be there again. And if there are teams that are injured, they're probably going to walk to the finals. But I guess we'll see. Maybe for another podcast, maybe we'll revisit this later on in the year. All right, man. I think that's a a great place to end it. Is there anything you want to tell the people about before we get out of here? Well, not really, man. I got I got some stuff in the works, Raptors related and otherwise. Uh, just gonna pretty much watch as much basketball as I can in preparation from this uh, for the banner being raised. How are you celebrating the uh, the Raptors winning the championship day? Uh, probably just watch the game, <laughs> grind <laughs> out the grind out the reaction podcast, write my stuff, and uh, do all that. Uh, for the people listening, I have a Mark Gasol piece coming out soon. So if you're interested in that, you can uh, you can go watch, go read that. I think it'll be out this Friday. And uh, yeah, beyond that, I've been Sam Folk. I am once again thanking you, Adam McQueen, for coming on. And uh, listener, whether you're listening to this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metric's second half 2020 U.S. reported three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.